Hey everyone, and welcome to Social Sport. I'm Emma Zimmerman, and on this podcast, I feature conversations with endurance athletes of all types committed to fostering social change. The athletes that I speak with on this show are climate change activists, mental health advocates, promoters of more inclusive outdoor spaces, and much more. Through Social Sport, I share the stories and thoughts of people who explore the connection between sport and activism in their lives. So let's dive right into it. Jacqueline Allness is a writer, runner, and an assistant professor of English at Westchester University. Her essays have been published in places that include the New York Times, Women's Running Magazine, Tin House, and more, and she is currently working on the memoir of running and neurological illness. But Jacqueline is perhaps most well-known for her tiny art, through which she elevates the voices and stories of female distance runners. If you're a fan of distance running, you have probably seen Jacqueline's tiny art because it is all over Instagram in the running world. And I actually had the treat to learn more about how Jacqueline does her tiny art in a workshop that she put on for a virtual retreat that I was actually a part of recently. And that was just so much fun to learn more about Jacqueline's process. Jacqueline is overall such a joy to chat with. She's so fun and inspiring, and I hope you enjoy this conversation just as much as I did. Hey, Jacqueline, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. I'm so excited. I know I was telling you a little bit off air, but um, I'm a big fan of both your art and your writing, and I know you're an advocate in so many different ways, so I'm really excited to have this conversation. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So Jacqueline, where are you in the world right now? I am in Pennsylvania. I'm just like 40 minutes outside of Philadelphia. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, I'm pretty familiar with that area. I actually have a sister who lives in Philly, so I love that city. It's a fun place to be for sure. I've like only been to Philadelphia itself, I think twice now. Really? really I just moved here last June and I'm kind of like a small town person, so it feels overwhelming to me to go to the city and it feels like I live in a big city, even though I live in like a very small suburb. <laughs> so okay, yeah. that's, that's really <laughs> funny that you say you're a small town person because I understand you've lived like everywhere and <laughs> I'm really curious about that. I know you've called many different places home that are not Pennsylvania. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Why have you moved around so much? Where all have you lived? Oh man, I've lived a lot of places. Um, My dad's job kept us moving when I was a kid. And so we lived everywhere from like Alaska to Louisiana, Indonesia, Texas. Um, And then I kept myself moving. I went to my undergrad in North Carolina, MFA, which we were talking about in um, Portland, Oregon, and then PhD in Oklahoma, and then job in Pennsylvania. So that's kept me on my own, <laughs> moving quite a bit. Oh my goodness. And now yeah. do you want to stay or you, is that like in your blood that need to keep moving? <laughs> I feel honestly so happy here. I'm like, as soon as I got here last summer, I was just really glad to be here. And I feel like this place has everything that I love. It has like 
good trails for me to go out and restaurants and it's small enough that I feel comfortable but big enough that I feel like I have things to do so I like it yeah yeah for sure and you're at Westchester uh, University right now yeah yeah awesome great and so we and we'll get into this a little bit later in the podcast but I know that you're teaching creative writing yeah so how has that been for you as a professor right now I know it's been really hard I feel for all the teachers and professors it was I it was I mean it was really tough I think mostly just because my favorite part of teaching is seeing my students and talking with them and seeing what comes to light in the classroom when I don't expect it but I have to say it was like the easiest transition because my students were just the best and they were just sending me these kind emails that were like if you need any help or like everything's gonna be fine so I felt like really supported by them which is really nice yeah that sounds amazing I think that's all you can ask for yeah (laughs) so although we started talking about the work that you do your profession as a professor and a writer a lot of people know you for your art I'm really anyone who's a fan of women's running probably knows your art if they don't know your name it's all over Instagram I would love to hear the story about how you got started with tiny art (laughs) it's so funny to me uh that like my art is so uh like the thing that people know most about me um just because it's like started off as such like a fun little hobby um I basically I was I finished my MFA and I moved home for the summer and I was like exhausted just because it's a lot to like it's a intense program for two years um and I got home and my mom was like, oh, you should relax. And I, she basically just bought me a Crayola set of watercolors and I started doing it and I just could not stop. Like I have all my creations and they're like, they're so terrible, but they're great to look back on and be like, oh, I actually have like improved in the, <laughs> in the time that I've been doing this. So that's been fun to see. I think it's funny that it started as this very calm, almost relaxing hobby because as really driven people, you seem like a very driven person and you're a professor, you have your PhD and you're also a a great distance runner. And so it's funny that you took this activity to be like your calm, relaxing. And then of course it became like this very well-known thing (laughs) and like of course now it's like yeah it's regimented where I'm like once a week I will make something new so I have to remind myself like today I didn't do anything and I was like it's okay like you can rest so I have to remind myself the same way I do with running like it's okay to you know calm down for a little while yeah I I need to hear that myself so thank you (laughs) so did you start drawing female distance runners right away when your mom got you those materials or how did that develop? No, I actually, it was probably like three years before I tried to draw a person. And my first tiny arts of people are like two inches big. So you can imagine that the people are just like, they're itty bitty. They're like Mm -hmm. not, you can hardly even see them. They're just like mostly legs and a uniform um and I think I forget when the first like four by six I did if it was for someone asking me to make it or something like that but I was like oh this is kind of hard but also kind of fun and so now they've gotten bigger and bigger as time has gotten on but yeah 
I just started with like little critters. Like I used to do butterflies and inchworms and sunshine. It was like very elementary. Like I just the things that I knew I could draw. <laughs> well, and they all look really cool. And I think that that is the why people are so drawn to your art. Is is this very specific? almost doodling style or maybe I'm putting words in people's mouths but I think it's a really cool style and I'm definitely very drawn to it but I know that you are drawing a lot of female distance runners now and a lot of people talk about I mean women's distance running is very exciting right now and not everyone who listens to this podcast I'm assuming is a fan of women's distance running because I feature athletes of different sports but I am myself and I can geek out about it forever, but I want to hear for you, why is the world of American women's distance running so exciting right now? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think for me, like it's because it transcends running. Like it's, I used to be obsessed with running like when I was in college, just to, for like the times and like, you know, how fast people could go. And that's, great and all and I think that's still like something obviously that I like definitely root on whoever's racing (laughs) um but I think that there are conversations about like what it means to be a woman and be a runner what it means to fight for equal pay what it means to fight for like um you know the right to get pregnant and still be sponsored uh race and running um just like so many intersections of different things that are happening that come or like that running brings to light in different ways and I think that those are the things that interest me um right now it's just like the conversations that people are having and like the people who are being being brave and being the first ones to speak out about issues that might not have been spoken out before so do you find yourself choosing specifically those distance runners who are social change focused as well Yeah, I mean, I think I have a blend. Like, I think sometimes I'll just have, like, a runner because something funny happened or something. Mm -hmm. Like, make, like, a whiskey is bourbon or whatever, the Des quote. Like, that's nothing (laughs) life-changing. But I think that, yeah, when I'm, like, really thinking about, like, who do I want to feature this week, I am being intentional about, like, is there something going on that's interesting to me that, like, I could – I mean, I think like so many people are invested in the different issues, but I think it's interesting in kind of like almost like a meditation or like a way for me to become mindful about what's happening or think about what the conversation is to like put it in a different form. So like to take it from like reading an article and having this whole wall of text to like picking one quote and putting it with the person and just thinking about what that means to me or like featuring that person in a different way in addition to the like other work that's going on about them. I don't know if that makes sense, but it seems like okay to just like pause on that for a minute. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I really like that you did bring up that kind of fun Des Linden quote (laughs) about whiskey, because in reality, I mean, you're, you're elevating women's voices in the sport. So it may not always be this in your face social change message, which is really awesome when it is. And of course, I'm all about that, but I think it's just powerful that you are elevating women's voices, whatever they might be saying, whether it is about whiskey or not. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> I'm curious about your process. Are you on the phone with Des Linden talking about, you know, what's a quote I can use? Uh, how do you decide 
what quote to use, what picture to use, what does that look like? I usually, I mean, I'm always just like tooling around Instagram way too much. So usually I'll like see if there's something interesting happening. Like I think recently I did like the Bowerman uh, picture where they're all hugging just because I saw that it was like one of the last races before COVID. <laughs> so it was like one of the last normal moments. And I remember seeing it and just being like, oh my gosh, that's such a nice image of like people celebrating each other, women celebrating each other. Um, so like I bookmarked it for myself. So sometimes it's just like scrolling and seeing like what's going on. Other times it's like, I was, I mean, I'm like Lindsay Krause's biggest fan. Oh, we all are. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, anytime she puts out a new article, I'm like, well, there's my quote for the week. Cause she's always doing something that's like amazing. Um, and then I read like women's running and yeah. So I basically just kind of like follow the conversations and then usually something will stand out to me of being like either resonating with me or kind of helping me think about things in a new way. And so I'm interested in it. Um, and then as far as pictures go, I also just kind of like browse around like whoever I'm painting. I just kind of like look around the internet and see which ones seem like it will fit with the words. Cause it's always like a game to be like, how do I put a person and then how's their quote going to fit? And like, how's it going to look? And like, so that's a fun thing to figure out. So fun. It's really cool to think about your actual process because I know this art everyone (laughs) sees this art but to think about someone actually going through and finding the quotes so you brought up Lindsay Krauss and I want to make sure for listeners that aren't aware which I hope they are but Lindsay Krauss is the New York Times journalist who has done an incredible job just really elevating women's voices and she broke the Mary Kane story Uh, she did dream eternity which I can link all of those but she's definitely a great inspiration to have and very related, I think, to what you're doing as well. Yeah, she's great. She is. So there are so many pieces of art, you know, if people scroll through your Instagram page, there are many pieces that have spoken to me and really resonated deeply with me and also I'm sure the rest of the running community. One that really comes to mind for me, I think you did it a while ago, was that really iconic picture of Alicia, Alicia Montano with the flower oh, in her yeah. <laughs> and I love her and I love that picture. And I thought the quote you chose is really awesome about, it was something about the sense of empowerment she has wearing that flower because it makes her feel feminine, but also strong. And I really resonated with that. I loved that. And I'm wondering if there's been anything, any specific piece of art or quote that you've highlighted that has most deeply resonated with you? Um, I think it, it varies. Like, I think it, each one I do, I'm like, this is the one, like, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't, like, I had a lot of fun, for example, doing the Olympic trial stuff. Like I did one before the Olympic trials and then I did one after, and it was like fun to feel like I was celebrating from my house. Cause I didn't go to the race to be like, oh, yay. Like, I watched it and it was emotional and now I get to celebrate it on paper. Um, But I think like, uh, I think always like the Gabe one I did after she passed, I think like I, I had painted a few of Gabe spring, I think like a few springs ago. And she like messaged me and was like, Oh, we should sell these. I love them. And it meant a lot to hear from her and just know that it was like mutual, like, she was giving me a lot of hope and I was like brightening her day in some way and so I think like it was a nice 
way for me to like meditate on her life the day after she died just to like I don't know celebrate what she had done for the running community so anytime I like get to make a game piece or send one out to someone or like people message me all the time with like they have them in frames in their houses and they'll be like or they'll say can you mail one to my friend who's going through cancer treatment and so like for me that's been like the most impactful series of paintings I've done just because the stories and the way that they're connected to like personal experiences I've had with people and then also just like a larger community has been really like incredible and I feel grateful to be a part a small part of that yeah I mean that that's really beautiful and I know that Gabe has had such a large impact on the running community and so many people have followed her story and definitely that art that you've done it's absolutely beautiful the art on Gabe and I think it also has really brought out her quotes and I apologize for the phone (laughs) right now so could you tell me a little bit more about what you're doing I know that you've continued to be involved with Brave Like Gabe and are you currently training for the New York Marathon for that's right now, right? That you're, yes. you're training and raising money for Brave Like Gabe. Could you tell yeah. me a little bit more about that? Why that is so important to you? I, I mean, I love marathon running. I think I'm, I ran like a two mile race, not as a joke, but like, because it was free and it was virtual and I'm in quarantine. So it sounded fun. And I hadn't run that short of a distance in forever. And I was like, this is why I run marathons because <laughs> it hurts so much worse. <laughs> so I, yeah, so I like, A, I love marathons. And then B, I, I've always wanted to like uh, meet some of the people from Brave Like Gabe who I've like emailed with or corresponded with or gotten to know in different ways. So when I was like scrolling through Instagram one day, these are, this is how all my stories start, I guess. I just saw that they were Relatable. like, yeah, <laughs> they were like, oh, Brave Like Gabe, there's like, I don't know, 20 spots open. And I didn't even think about if I wanted to run a marathon or like when it was or what my life would look like. I was just like, hello, I want to run this, like, please. So uh, it's been like, it was really fun to, you know, raise money for that. And just like, again, I was overwhelmed by the sense of community that came from that of just like people I think it was in within like three weeks they we raised the money and I was like this is just wild to me so it's just like a testament to the running community I think and to people who are like keeping her legacy alive through their sense of hope and so yeah I really hope that the marathon happens we'll see but otherwise I'll probably run it virtually somehow (laughs) yeah I really hope it happens too yeah Yeah, I think that it's so amazing to hear about your experience with how strong the running community is because I completely resonate with that as well. And I think that any, if anything, your work has also shown that how much, especially the women's running community is extremely strong. And you also mentioned how much you love running marathons. And I saw that you ran a marathon by yourself on your birthday really fast. (laughs) How did you inspire yourself to do that? How did you get yourself to do that? I used to have a ritual, which is now no longer in practice, where I would run my new age on my birthday. So the year I was turning 25, I decided to run 25 miles around town. And it's like the most fun thing. Like I used to just go out and like I would have 
I would leave like Gatorade by my house and swing by and just, you know, have a little station. And I got to 25 miles that day and I was like, hey, I think I could beat my marathon PR. So I just kept going <laughs> like through the neighborhood. I'm sure I looked like a little bit wild, but I was so happy that day and it was, it was really fun. So yeah, <laughs> it was kind of unexpected. Said no, said no one ever. I be, yeah. I want to beat my marathon PR alone. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. It was fun. So we're, we're going into a little bit your own running experience. And I know we've talked about the work you've done to elevate female runners, but you are also quite the runner yourself. And I know you were a division one cross country and track runner, but I also know that that experience as a collegiate runner was affected by your experience with neurological illness. So I know that you've spoken about this experience, you've written about it so eloquently. And as much as you're comfortable with, could you tell me how that illness manifested in college and how it affected your experience? Yeah, I, uh, I grew up as a swimmer. So I, I like swam forever. And then, um, I think it was in eighth grade, I ran a timed mile and I like beat everyone. And my PE teacher was like, you should probably run. <laughs> so I started and then I became like very quickly obsessed with running. Like in high school, it was like my defining feature was like, it's the runner girl. Um, which was a good and bad thing. Cause I think when I went to college, I went like, oh, I'm a runner. And I didn't really have many other parts of me that were like as fully fleshed out. Um, and I think Lauren Fleshman talks about this sometimes where she says like multi hyphenate identities or something where you're like more than just you as a runner, more than just you as, you know, something. Um, and that's something I know now and not that I knew then, but yeah, I was a runner and my cross country season went like surprisingly well. I was kind of like not supposed to be that good. And I never was amazing, but it was like, I did, I didn't well enough to make like the travel team. And yeah, my second semester of my freshman year, I just like fainted one day in my dormitory. And I didn't really think too much of it because I'd fainted like, I don't know, 12 times when I was a kid, just like from blood, seeing blood or like it being too hot. I was like kind of like a fainting kid I guess um and but then in the days after I just like remained really dizzy and couldn't quite feel like I was back in my body in the way that I had been before I fainted um and this like devolved into months-long saga of like me really not feeling like myself but the trainer and the athletic doctor and my coach we're all like, you're fine because I, my blood pressure and heart rate were fine and they couldn't see anything wrong with me. So I kept trying to run that semester with no success. Um, and then I ended up quitting the team that following fall because I kept trying to run and I would have like symptoms um, and I just didn't feel like I was connected to the team in the same ways I had been. So I kind of yeah, I, I stopped after that, at least running there. And I think that for me, like it changed my perception of running. This took like years. It didn't happen overnight. <laughs> but I think that I'm very much like a person who will push myself till I can't push myself anymore. I think that's kind of the allure for a lot of distance runners is that you get to go to the brink of what is possible for your body. Um, but I think that something I've learned is that that's not sustainable and that's not 
my main priority anymore just because I know what it's like to not be able to run and I know what it's like to want to even go for just like a mile slow walk so now I kind of just run for like I mean I slip up sometimes but I run mostly just for like the joy of it and the the kind of like space that I give myself when I go for a run yeah and I like how you brought up that I guess finding multiple identities outside of running because I think that's something that is finally being talked about more that there is this almost obsessive nature in I think especially girls distance running that often leads to very unhealthy relationships I mean I think people have been talking more about eating disorders and distance running and that's all really tied together so I like that you brought that up and brought up the work that Lauren Fleshman is doing how do you keep yourself from having that or continuing to have a healthier relationship with running and really focusing on the many different aspects of your personality I think first I just like I had to learn about myself like who I was and what I like to do I think when you're a runner especially like when you're in college as a runner you like wake up you eat breakfast you go to weights you go to practice you go to class you do a team meeting then you go to bed so your whole life is kind of like you don't have space or time to be like uh I'm gonna you know watercolor paint for fun (laughs) for an hour you're kind of like I'm really stuck to this structure and if I don't do this run it's not going to be good for my next run like everything is very structured which is nice in some ways and then um you know it doesn't really allow you to figure out like who am I as a college student like how do I make friends who how do I live by myself without anyone telling me what to do um so I kind of went through that uh, transition my second year when I wasn't on the team, I kind of had to learn like, how do I fill my days and what do I like to do if I don't have to run and if I don't have practice? So that also took me a really long time to figure out, but I, I fell into like a writing class that semester, which was like the best thing to happen to me. And I just became obsessed with writing in almost the same way that I became obsessed with running where like you can, you know, spend hours and hours and hours on a piece and still have it you can make it better so it's like the same thing with a race where you're like you end and you're like well I might be able to do one more draft of that but yeah so I think that that helped like I started writing and then as I you know kept going it's been like I don't know 10 or 11 years but like painting and um having just friends and just knowing that rest is fine and that I'll be totally fine as a runner and as a person if I take a day off or want to go for a walk um so reminding myself of those things helps me a lot just like having a variety of things to do yeah and I'm super impressed that you've been able to come to that um, peaceful mindset because it seems like running was torn from you in a way that was much more intense than it is taken from a lot of people and I know that a lot of people in your college reacted not in not, not a very nice way of in <laughs> fact like very very mean way to this neurological illness and you wrote about that so beautifully in the New York Times and a number of places could you talk a little bit more about that the way my team reacted yes if you're yeah. not comfortable with that oh yeah um yeah that was hard too I feel like part of being part of the team was like that was the benefit of running was like you had a built-in set of friends and you had 
people who really cared deeply about you and who knew your life. It was hard to kind of relate to people who weren't in that mindset of, you know, training and practice and this is your life. Um, but yeah, when I started having my episodes, there, everyone was really kind at first. Um, they were, you know, take me to the doctor and um, just like care for me generally. And they were worried about me. Um, and then, yeah, well, as the weeks went on, they would just like, uh, they like film me and put it on YouTube of me having symptoms. Um, or just like tell me to do things while I was incoherent and then tell me about what had happened later. And I think that looking back, I didn't recognize that there was anything wrong with what they were doing. I kind of told myself that they had cared for me. So they still did care about me in this strange way. And that this was a form of care. Um, even though now looking back, I'm like, oh my God, that definitely wasn't. Now that I've had people in my life who like really are caring and loving and um, respectful. So, yeah. Yeah, that makes me so livid hearing that yeah. story as I'm sure it has that reaction on or that effect on a lot of people. And I mean, I really want to applaud you for writing about that experience with so much craft because it's a really vulnerable thing to do. And I think it really goes into this advocacy piece of you. And I'm curious why it was so important to you to share this story that I'm sure was really hard to write about. Yeah, I think that part of it is that I, and I think this has come out, I think this is why I'm obsessed with a lot of the Lindsay Krause pieces, especially the Mary Kane one. There's just this idea, I think, a lot in running where you can just overcome anything if you push your body hard enough. Like you can... We, I mean, we, on our team, we used to brag about like, oh, I ran through a stress fracture. I ran for six weeks on this. I did, you know, like there's like sort of like a badge of honor if you're running through some kind of pain. And so I think that something that looking back on my experience, there was always my symptoms were framed in this way where like, you'll be able to come back for the 10K in six weeks. Don't you worry. And there was never really a focus on like, we have a person who's really not well, who all of a sudden became really not well at the age of 18. Like, I think we should probably figure this out. Or like, maybe running can take a backseat for a good six months and it will still be there when you come back. But I think that was never told to me. And I think that I worry sometimes, or I want to be a role model for runners, I guess, who I am always an advocate for prioritizing your health and your overall wellness over being able to run. Because I think you can only run well if your whole self is like happy and taken care of and not if you're just like pushing through these different kinds of pain to be able to make a certain time or get to a certain meet or something like that. So that's something that I think I'm passionate about is understanding that and wishing I could go back to my younger self and be like, you can just rest and it will be okay. <laughs> yeah. Don't we all wish we could go yeah. back to our younger selves? <laughs> Has there been a time where you've seen the effect of sharing your story on someone else? Um, I mean, I think that like the response from a lot of runners has been really kind in the sense that people are empathetic and like definitely cheer me on. I think it's also hard in some ways sharing my story, especially 
the New York Times piece you brought up, you have like 1,200 words to communicate what's happened in like over a decade. So it's very limiting in terms of like the story is about my dad and me as a runner. And like, it's a not supposed to be like a comprehensive health. Like here's mm-hmm. what, here's everything I've done to heal myself in the past 10 years. So I think what was interesting about that one was it was like the first big publication I'd ever gotten where you like get a bunch of comments and emails afterward. And I got so many emails that were like, you're so stupid for running. Like you're, you should really, yeah. (laughs) They were like, you're probably going to die if you keep running. Like your dad's so stupid for letting you run. And I was like, I'm, you know, X years old. I don't need my dad to tell me I can run. (laughs) It's like, I'm an adult. So I think that that was interesting to me was just realizing that like when I'm writing, sometimes people can't ever know the whole extent of like, and I don't share the whole extent of like, how much I've done to understand myself and, you know, learn about myself and take care of myself. It's like the writing can't tell all of that. So I think that there's like a line of it's super empowering and I'm grateful to the community for like accepting me and supporting me and cheering me on. But I always, when I publish things, have to like remind myself that there's going to be people who don't understand it and don't understand that like, I am taking care of myself, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that whenever you're vulnerable or in any advocacy work, really, there's going to be people who don't agree with it. And one thing that I've been thinking a lot about is people say that, you know, maybe people who are very strong advocates or really share their voices don't care what other people think, but that's not really true. It's just that you've in some way learned to move beyond the words of negativity how do you do that how do you not listen to all those emails that are telling you you shouldn't run or whatever it may be um I mean I think I've gotten better the more I've done it so like the first time was definitely a shock factor of like whoa okay this this happens um I think also just being more sure of myself like it's helpful like I I always tell my students when they're thinking about publishing things I'm always just like it's not bad to wait because I, I like went through my whole MFA and didn't really publish. And I'm glad that I gave myself those years. Cause I feel like when I did publish, I was like ready as a person to publish and not just like my writing was ready, but like I was also ready. So I think that that's something that like has helped me is that I've waited until I'm like ready to do things. I also have like a super great network of people in person who I'm like can you go vent to about an email and they're just like Jacqueline is one random person on the internet you're fine um and then just also like the support from people when I do publish something far outweighs like the random people who email me it's like all the people that I love are like this is amazing thank you for sharing or they'll tell me their stories or stuff like that so I think it balances out yeah for sure I'm sure it does even reading your stuff And I know we've gone a little bit into how you're a professor and also a writer. And I'm really excited to talk more about your profession because I spoke to you earlier about how I'm also getting my MFA in creative nonfiction. So I'm obsessed with this subject. Did you you always know you wanted to be a writer and or a professor? Now, looking back, I would say yes, but I don't think that I always knew it. I didn't think you... I didn't really know you could just be a writer. Like I thought it was like some mystical thing that like 
I obviously read tons of books when I was a kid, but I never thought about like, oh, there's an actual person who like sits in their house and writes this and like gets paid to do it. So I, yeah, I mean, I always like wrote and read a lot. Um, but when I was in college, like I told you, after I quit the team, I went, took my first creative writing class kind of for fun, just as like a supplement to my English major. And I just instantly fell in love. Like I was one of those annoying like I'm sure not annoying because I love when people do this, but come to my <laughs> office like every week and I went to my professor's office and I was just like, hello, I have a new draft. I have a new thing. I tried a new thing. So I got like really into it. And then it just kind of like, I always love teaching. Like I love engaging with people that way. And I think you forge really meaningful connections. So I always knew that I wanted to do something with teaching. Um, I didn't know if being a professor would be an option. So I think the more that I was in school, the more I was just like, okay, we're going to the next step. Like, let's see if we can get there. And so I feel really grateful to be here. What do you want to teach your students about the power of written word? Like if I were your student right now, what would you want me to understand about why words are a powerful form of advocacy? Ooh, that's a great question. And this is something that I feel like I don't teach. I feel like they teach themselves this. Mm-hmm. It's always so rewarding for me to see. I usually do things in like a workshop setting where you, you know, everyone gets to read one person's piece. And for me, the most amazing part of class is just them sending each other notes or sending me emails that's like, I didn't realize like the power we had in this room until I read everyone else's work. And now I have this whole new understanding of other people and appreciation for other people's stories and I feel like there's power in my own and so that's something that I don't even feel like I teach because I don't do I don't like I don't do anything besides facilitate that space for them but for me that's like the most rewarding part is just them acknowledging each other's stories and yeah yeah no, that's that's really beautiful. And I know that you do a lot of acknowledging other people's stories in your, especially in the book list that you do on long reads, which people should definitely check out and all the reading list. Sorry. I oh, can yeah. <laughs> link to that where you dive into the, the best books that folks should read to understand certain subjects. Is there one subject that you think society, society could benefit to read more about? Ooh, that's a really hard question. Yeah, sorry. I'm oh, <laughs> one thing that's so hard. My gut reaction to that question is to say, like, maybe this is like a sign of my being indecisive, but I think that for me, the wider I read, the better I get a sense of like other people's experiences. So for me, it, if I'm like only reading from one person's point of view or one group of people's point of view I kind of like have to check myself and see if I can read it from another person's just so that I can like understand you know the nuances of a situation so I don't know if there's like an issue that I'm obsessed with like I feel like as a writer I fall down to a lot of little rabbit holes of obsessions but I think usually when I do that I'm like let me read 10 books about the same thing and see what a bunch of different people have to say. <laughs> well, honestly, that answer is to me really fitting with who you are because you do have your foot in so many different doors, so to speak, <laughs> and so many different things that you are passionate. You really are, in my opinion, 
getting different perspectives. There's, you know, there's this big passion for running that you have. There's this passion for being an advocate about neurological illness and elevating women's voices through art. So I'm also curious how you fit all of that together because you do have so many passions, it seems like. <laughs> it's definitely like how do you like balance that? that? <laughs> I think that's that relates well back to your question of like, how do you how are you kinder to yourself as a runner? I think I'm like generally kinder to myself these days. Like, for example, last week I graded and I graded through the weekend. And that meant that I literally ran, I think, eight miles last week and I painted nothing. And I have gone for walks and like read books for fun, but done nothing else. And I'm totally fine with that. So I think there are some seasons where like, for example, this summer, I'm hoping to do a lot of my own writing and research. And I know that that will take a priority. And I think that, you know, running probably will take a priority just because I have so much time and we're in quarantine and like, I need something to do. Um, but I, I think like, usually I just view it as like, I have seasons of growth and seasons of rest in each of the things that I do and that it doesn't have to be this all or nothing do everything all the time, or I would definitely not be able to do any of it well. That's, yeah. I think that's really important to hear. Yeah. I think it's important for a lot of people to hear because especially, I think you read about the work that different people are doing and especially people who are very driven, who are advocates, who are professionals and athletes. And it seems like they must have 27 hours a day, you know, and I think it's refreshing to hear that there is some compartmentalizing and yeah, devoting. I like what you said about devoting different seasons to different yeah. passions. So that's awesome. Do you yeah. have any goals for the future in either tiny art or your writing or professor work or running? What are you looking forward to in the future? Um, I'm looking forward to more marathons. That's always my answer for running. I think this summer I might try to run a 5k just for kicks, just to be like, can you go fast? Or like, can you feel the burn for three miles? Um, I think as far as everything else goes, I'm working on a writing project about this group of fruitarians. So they're just people who eat fruit. And so that's really, really fun. And so I'm getting to like interview a lot of great people and read a lot of really wild books and just kind of like diving into something new feels exciting. And what else am I excited about? Just more teaching. I'm teaching a new like environmental class in the fall, which is new to me and I proposed it. So I'm like pumped to see what kind of like nature writing they come up with. Um, and what I learn in class too. <laughs> That's always like the exciting part. So I think a lot of good things coming up. Wow. Okay. I have a lot of questions about a lot of the things <laughs> you just mentioned. One of them is that it's funny that you brought up the fruitarian research and writing you're doing because actually when I was looking at your bio on your website, <laughs> it says that you, one of your obsessions is fruitarian YouTubers. Yeah. And I thought, I'm like, what I was not imagining that fruitarians are people who just eat fruit. I thought this was some word, some like very obscure literary word that I was not aware of. So I looked up like dictionary.com fruitarian. And to my surprise, fruitarians are people who just eat fruit. Um, so I'm really excited to read the writing that you do on that because that is okay. a topic I know nothing about. And that's really interesting. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I'm also curious on a more serious note about the nature writing that you're doing. How did that come to you? Because it seems like a different topic, I guess, from the, the writing that you've done that I've read. Is that another topic that you're super passionate about? How does that fit into your life? How did you come to that? I, I took a class in my PhD. It was like a really special class with just like, I think there were just like six of us in there. So it was really tiny and our professor was amazing. And it was just an eco-composition class. So we were just studying like the way that place and spaces affect us. And I started thinking about like that usually in environmental like literature classes or writing classes, we're like reading a bunch of like old dead white men writing from like a, an idyllic cabin in the woods and like that's it and I started wondering like what you know how do intersections of like gender and sexual identity and race intersect with place and nature and how do we move through spaces differently because of those things and how do spaces affect us so I'm just hoping to read like a bunch of fun books and essays and have us do like, I don't know, some activities that like help us see space differently and think about it um, together and see what we come up with. But I would say like, I'm obsessed with like birds. I love bird watching. It's like, so I'm like kind of a little bit of a nature nerd, but not like yeah. to the extent of like it actually being something that I broadcast I feel <laughs> but yeah I definitely love nature <laughs> that's really cool it sounds like an awesome class I'm, I'm jealous of your students I <laughs> would love to, to sit in on that class and it just seems overall like through all of your work that you're doing through tiny art and through your writing you're just really focused on intersecting identities and the way that our different identities affect us I mean that's what I get out of the work that you do of tiny art and all the women's voices that you're elevating so Thank you for taking that um, intersecting lens. I think that that's really important for a lot of people to see. Yeah, thank you. So before we wrap up, it wouldn't be a podcast without <laughs> rapid fire questions to <laughs> keep you on your toes. So first of all, I know that you bake a lot of cookies. Yes. <laughs> so if you could only eat one type of cookie for the rest of your life, what would you choose? Oh, man. I... I think double dark chocolate chip cookies. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> if you could send a batch of cookies to anyone in the world right now, who would it be? Oh, I think my mom, because it was Mother's Day and I wanted to be with her yesterday, but I can't. So probably my mom. Yeah, good answer. Yeah. And what's the best book you've read so far this year in 2020? Oh, that's such a hard question. I literally just finished this novel Severance like a couple hours ago. And so it's the only thing in my brain. It's about a pandemic and it's kind of dystopic. So it was very eerie to read right now, but it was very good. What else have I read this year? I've read a lot of books that I love this year. I read The Vegetarian, which is another okay. really weird, unsettling novel. I feel like this is my go-to right now is weird, unsettling things. <laughs> um, but it was really good too. Yeah, I'm right. trying to now. But yeah, those are some good ones. Yeah, well, maybe people need some unsettling books because yeah. that's, the, that's the mindset we're all in right now. <laughs> that's true. What's one athlete who you really want to feature in Tiny Art? Ooh, that's a good question. I'm trying to think of someone I haven't done yet. Man, 
This one completely caught me off guard. I don't know. <laughs> too many. Yeah, too many. I feel like, yeah, I feel like I have like dozens that I'm like, I would love to do this. And then your quote comes up of there aren't 27 hours in the day. So I'm going to do like one by yeah, one. For sure. So we'll see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll have to, well, everyone will have to follow along and um, yeah. your Instagram and see who you, who you come up with. And I know you featured so many already. Yeah. So it's probably, yeah. <laughs> Where can folks go to find you on the internet and on social media? You can find me on Instagram, which is probably what I'm on most. And it's just my name, Jacqueline Allness. And if you want to read my writing, I have a website where I have all my writing and then I have all the books that I've read for the past like four years. So if you want to browse mm -hmm. through, I don't know, everything I've read. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, those are probably the easiest places to find me, I think. Awesome. And are you also on Etsy? I think I saw your art. Is oh on yeah, Etsy? I am on Etsy. I'm on vacation, okay. right? Vacation, quarantine vacation right now. So I haven't okay, okay. Etsy in a while, but it will open this summer again. Yeah. Okay. So for the future, maybe I'll leave some links to yeah, that. So that'd people be can, great. Thank you. Can, can check out your artwork. And before we go, the question I like to end on is why is sport such a powerful platform for social change? Ooh, that's a great question. I think it's a form of community. So I think that's a really powerful part of it. But I think like it's also a way of illuminating, you know, issues in society that come to light in sport in like a smaller microcosm. So maybe it's easier to see or you see it in different ways or you see it happening to members of your own community. So it's more accessible. So yeah, that's what I would say is it feels like, a community space to look at issues together. Yeah, no, absolutely. A little microcosm. And yeah. I love that you seem to be contributing to that. I mean, it's almost that <laughs> metaphor of tiny things yeah. and this little <laughs> microcosm. But in reality, I mean, if you're, you're a tiny art, you are contributing to that. And writing, which seems like a really small, one work of writing seems really small, but in reality, where you're contributing to this greater conversation. So thank you for all the work that you're doing. Yeah, thank you. And it's been really fun to talk with you today, Jacqueline. I'm excited to follow along and um, see all of the work that you do, both in writing as well as in your art in the future. Same. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Jacqueline Allness. I loved learning more about Jacqueline's writing and her advocacy for neurological illness and her tiny art. Definitely make sure to check out Jacqueline's tiny art on Instagram and Etsy if you have not already. And you can find the links to all of this and more in the show notes at anchor.fm slash social sport. If you've enjoyed these conversations, please leave social sport a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And check out the Instagram and Facebook pages at Social Sport Pod to follow along. I have lots of great episodes coming out, including conversations with other women who are elevating the stories of female athletes and some Pride Month-focused content. I can't wait to share all of those with you. And finally, please reach out if this conversation resonated with you. I love hearing from people who listen to the pod. So thank you everyone for coming along and as always, keep sporting and keep resisting.